CFDs Weekly. Welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast in the world. Uh, this week, I'm joined by David Bell, and uh, actually, we've I've been thinking more about what the uh, intro music uh, to this episode should be than the actual episode itself. You know, when I when I started, uh, I was like, I th- I thought when I started this, I would do like only 1980s film music as the intro. And then I was like, I only do Tom Cruise 1980s music uh, as the intro. But then last week I changed that. So I think I might do like Mashtown or something like that. Anyway, there's the Mashtown. Yeah, something like that. Uh, Anyway, the, the, yeah, so I've been focused more on like the most unimportant part of it than the actual uh, content. But anyway, so I think, yeah, I think I do probably actually. (laughs) But uh, anyway, uh, D- David, I think will probably be uh, familiar to, to lots of people. But just just for someone who isn't, can you give a brief overview of kind of who you are and and what you do? Yeah, um, I'm the uh, I'm, I'm David Bell, I'm the founder of uh, Macrodisiac, which is uh, kind of like a, a, a jewel business. It's probably going to morph into loads of different things over the years. Um, but traditionally, we started off as you know providing articles via email to just retail clients um i was putting stuff out daily on linkedin and then someone said all right well you should probably just charge for it why not and i was like all right let's have let's give it a go um and pretty rapidly it turned into an actual business so i was like okay uh, let's keep going with this um but more recently we've uh, we've moved into doing stuff with b2b clients um whether it's just content writing or consulting around you know pretty much everything um, because my experience from working as head of growth at trading view obviously working in broking as well and also trading probably complements things quite well you know it gives me a nice uh 360 degree view um of of the whole industry and also uh, i did market data for for trading view as well so i you know, spoke the exchanges understand you know the different pricing structures what the requirements are there etc um so yeah, I think that's that's a nice little little rundown of of what I do. Um, my views on the market tend to be very macro focused, as the name sort of implies. Macro, Dziak, um, some technical stuff, but yeah, I, th- I think that's that's probably my forte is analysing things, taking a bit of a step back, and and seeing uh, seeing the way the world works. Yeah, you're very um, you know. You seem to hate Germany, for example, and uh, probably, probably a discussion for another time. It, it's and, uh, not that I, listen, it's not that I hate Germany. It's just, I like to provide balance, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think the overriding point there is more that um, people don't look at the relative context of different economies enough. So, and it's fair enough, you know, you've got the media in the UK are obviously going to focus on the UK. It's more important for people in the UK. But to always provide balance, um, you, you need to look at other economies as well to show that, okay, things are bad, but it's bad everywhere, or things are good, but it's also equally good everywhere. Because otherwise, you just get this neuroticism that we tend to have. Um, and it, it's just not beneficial. It's not beneficial for anyone. Like, perfect example um back in august or september when the the uh, the mini budget stuff was happening 
people were talking about, oh, mortgage mortgage deals are being pulled in the UK because of all of this. And I was like, well, yeah, but mortgage rates in the US are also being pulled. Uh, sorry, mortgage deals in the US are also being pulled and rates have increased rapidly there as well. But, you know, the media likes to look at things in isolation and it's just not beneficial. So I think that's why I go so staunchly on uh, mentioning these other things because there seems to be a romanticism of foreign economics, foreign politics, um, and a real British cultural almost dislike of masochism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. So I like to provide that balance, basically. And you have to do it strongly to to evoke some emotion. Yeah, no. So that's something I noticed a lot in my sort of day job with um, the UK stock market. So if you look at what's happened over the past, like this yeah, yeah, no worries. totally, totally a different to what we actually should be talking about. But like, just as an aside, before we actually start talking about CFD shit, um, if you look at, yeah, if you look at the UK stock market, there is like this kind of glee that so many people in the press seem to take and being like, the UK is fucking shit. Look how bad it is. No one wants to invest here. And if you actually look at what, what's happened over the past 30 years, <laughs> basically have this huge movement of pension funds out of equities into fixed income cash to meet their liabilities right and then you don't have obviously there's been also a lot of negative sentiment after brexit which is kind of and, and sort of uncertainty so that's hit valuations quite a lot but yeah I just, if, you, if you actually look at what has happened a lot of it is down to kind of market dynamics rather than fundamentals but even if you was even if you were trying to say it, oh, but this place isn't, you know, this, the UK does suck. It's never in a constructive way of like, how can we improve it? It's always just, it's just always this weird thing of wanting to say how how much it, it, it fucking sucks here. Which and and then the, and the other thing is that if you actually so that then the other point they'll make is um, if you look at the sector weightings of the UK, they'll go, oh, it's, you know, it sucks because you don't have like you know amazing. Uh, uh, companies that don't make any money and like, they deliver hot dogs on exactly. a moped or something in America, you know, like random shitty tech companies. <laughs> okay, that's an exaggeration. But what they'll say is, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the sector weightings in the UK, it's very skewed to stuff like energy uh, and things like that. But then you look at basically the only market that isn't like that is the US. If you look at say Canada, if you look at quite a few, quite a few European countries, um, none of them have the same thing either. So. I can completely see where you're coming from, but I think if we keep talking about this, we're going to kind of fall down a yeah, rabbit hole. So, we can talk, <laughs> talk about that for for ages, and I've written articles on you know how the FTSE uh, possibly isn't the best index for the economy because it doesn't inspire more inward investment, you know, tech that kind of thing. Take the example of ARM, but maybe we can do that another day. Um, but I think yeah, yeah, you know, even from that perspective though. You might be able to look at the brokerage industry in a similar light. Um, I, I guess there's there's certain things that might limit the UK to to acting or creating, uh, say, your Robin Hood in the you know payment for order flow is is banned. Um, but Europe has very very similar. You know, a lot of firms um, over there do commission free trading and you know send flow to the likes of Getex, TradeGate, that kind of thing. Are they that successful? Yeah. I'm not sure. I think the US is a very, very special case in that um, they absolutely are willing just to chuck money at anything and hope it sticks because there's so much money sloshing about over there. 
Um, it's, it's unlike any other yeah. economy. I guess China is sort of parallels, um, but even then, the political space in China doesn't necessarily permit the same sort of speculation as we've seen over the last two years. Or it has done, but they're cracking down on it, basically. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it's just it's an underrated point. It's just the US has this huge, and China as well, has this huge domestic consumption that you don't really have in the UK, um, which is another problem. But anyway, so what what have you been doing with CFD companies? And uh, what are your takeaways from that? Like, what, 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 what kind of things? What, so, so that maybe explain first what sort of work you've been consulting on. And then if you have kind of any, what, what are you seeing there that you think brokers should be aware of sort of yeah so i think learn. primarily um what we <clears throat> what we tend to see is that and and this is the overriding point across almost everything maybe apart from the top one or two which i think do things very differently i don't know if we can name names on on this but you know top one or two brokers that do spread betting etc you're going to know who they are um and this isn't from my experience. This is just you can tell that they've got things figured out because they're the top one or two. Um, but the the one thing that I've noticed specifically is when it comes down to the content side, there is a massive lack of intent behind 90% of what's going out. Um, and I think this becomes a real, real issue because it then it then creates a breakdown between how you're communicating with a client and it, it it basically gives the the conclusion that oh this isn't working when really it's not working because you don't know how to implement it correctly. Um, for example, so it's just just actually yeah go ahead. I was going to say what do you mean by like intent? So why would you? And this is a great example right about the Kenyan shilling. If your client base, if, firstly, if you don't have the product to be able to trade the Kenyan shilling. Um, and your client base isn't from East Africa. Why, why would you be writing about that? What is the call to action based off of that piece of content to get someone who might click on it, um, to then becoming an actual client that generates revenue? Like there's so many instances of things like that occurring, even client segmentations as well. Um, it's just considered that, okay, you've got at the top of the funnel, maybe um, organic traffic, then you've got someone that might sign up, then you've got someone that, you know, deposits, then you've got this, but there's no other segmentations beyond there. Like, how do you optimize um, from when someone clicks on a specific piece of content, and then opens up an account? What is the difference between someone who's clicking on that content and this content? How can you optimize then to understand what they are doing at each stage of the journey, what their preferences are, how can you get them to trade a little bit more? All of these things matter because if you're doing that for multiple different clients, you know, even a 5% increase in revenue is big. Um, and these things can, these things can happen. You know, they, they certainly can happen. But I think at the basic level, there's a massive um, a sort of siloed effect between marketing sales uh and and the client at the end of the day you know you've got marketing departments who aren't traders who have never worked you know in markets creating content for clients how how does that work you know how do you know and preempt what a client's going to need um it, it it just boggles my mind is all 
um, as to how you're creating the best stuff. And this comes into the consumer duty stuff that's coming out on April the 30th too. How are you creating the best uh, forms of communication to your client if you've never actually, you know, lifted an offer or hit a bid? It's impossible. Yeah, but do you, but do, isn't isn't that just basically that would be so hard to hire for that, right? Like if I think of, I I could I you could argue that I fit into that category. I think it's a bit different because I've never really done, um, yeah, like derivatives trading. But if I think of my previous job, a lot of it was kind of like stock analysis. It's kind of the same in my current job, right? It's a lot of looking. You're basically looking at you're doing fund analysis, um, funds marketing, that kind of stuff. Um, I suppose the difference there is it's it's a, it's a bit more long term. So you're just buying and like someone that buys an investment trust, for example, is probably whether they put ten grand in their set is going to buy an investment trust and hold it for like yeah. ten years or twenty years or something. So it's different to someone who's thinking about you know like order fills and latency. No, and all this kind I of think stuff. Um, the the difference is though is that again, it comes back to that intent. Like, why am I creating this piece of content? Like, what is the end goal of, of you know, the message that I want to send out? What do I want the client or prospective client to do based off of this? Um, and just by looking at, say, you know, your stats or your SEO stats, just because, you know, you might be getting a load of traffic for a certain piece of content doesn't mean that you're going to get conversions. It just means that you're going to get a lot of traffic. Like one specific issue that a lot of UK brokers face is that they'll they'll do a lot of uh, SEO work, but their traffic will be from the US. And so they can't onboard those clients, right? So it looks fantastic on the dashboards, but when you actually get into it, it's like, oh, the client's from somewhere where we can't even onboard them. How do I then create content that is focused towards the clients that I actually need to acquire? Um, and that is a tricky thing to do. And but there's certain ways which, you know, you can propose, but I feel like a lot of brokers just aren't prepared to be able to dedicate um, the adequate time and the adequate uh, sort of thinking outside of the box to do these things. Um, and it's a shame. It's a shame. I understand at the moment that the brokerage industry is going through a bit of a tiny bit of a cash crunch. I think everyone is. Um, it's just the, the, the business cycle. Um, but I think over the pandemic as well, I think a lot of brokers have spent a lot of money when they didn't need to. Um, they would have got the clients anyway. And now they're like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> what, what do I do? Um, and, you know, but it's, it's that euphoria that everyone sort of saw. You know, the retail clients are going absolutely manic through that period. Um, you know, how the hell does GameStop go up that much? You know, all of these meme stocks, like, it, it was insane. And I think... You know, decisions were made based off of uh, based off of you know what was going on over the pandemic, and it was considered almost like a new normal for some reason when it wasn't. You know, I guess people didn't realize or know how long the pandemic would go on for. I feel like we actually had quite an abrupt end to it. Um, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I think I think there was. Uh, a little bit too much excitement over certain business decisions over the pandemic. Um, and no, I, I, yeah, that's just from my overview yeah. of looking at the industry and, you know, but, introducing. Yeah. One thing, one thing I would, uh, I would, I would say though, right. Is um, I think 
for I, I think there's really two points. So one just goes back to my my previous question, right? Which is I think finding finding someone like you, and I'm not yeah, you know, I'm not trying to groundize you as yeah, like finding someone that has had the breadth of experience you've had in terms of understanding how the mechanics of trading, understanding all the different parts of the business, and being quite good at writing and actually doing it is is really yeah, rare. I mean, like it's really rare. So if you so if you're looking to hire someone like that, you actually are, are pretty limited in who you, you can do it. So if your if your choice is like I can try and pay someone, you know, quite quite a good salary, versus I can hire someone like and and you or it's like an afterthought to you. It can go I'll hire some copywriter guy for thirty grand or whatever. Probably not even that. Um, they'll probably yeah. just do that. I mean, this, this is the thing: is that you know. It, it comes down to as well. Uh, the content writing is easy. Like that is the easiest thing ever. The, the 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 difficult thing about going into a into a brokerage and sort of consulting is trying to change minds based on how things have previously been done, um, and persuading that you know you're probably going to have to make some considerable changes um, because currently there's too much disaggregation far too much disaggregation between sales trading and marketing maybe not so much on the dealing side but you know the 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 sales and marketing side like you can ask any sales guy do you talk to marketing they'll say not really and it's like well why not you need to be communicating constantly like once a week like if you've got maybe your top five percent of clients who generate you know sorry five percent of your clients generate maybe like what 60% 60% of revenue you need to be tailoring everything to retaining that client do you know what I mean and that is literally paramount it makes most sense to do that it's the least effort for the most reward rather than trying to just acquire constant new clients and you know that churn rate goes up and it's just you know tailor everything to just retaining those clients but it feels like acquisition is paramount when in this environment it definitely is not yeah, well, I think if you look at it, that's actually something that um, Drew Niv, who was the guy that founded FXCM, uh, point he made a couple of months ago where he was saying if you look at his, well, he was saying basically in his time in the industry, which is like 25 roughly years, you just have a kind of cycles. So you have, if you think of, say, um, and a couple of other people said this to me, if you look at the late 90s, early 2000s, there was also a kind of boom in this industry. It's very, It's really similar to what happened recently, right? You had to dot-com boom everyone wanted to trade stocks that's when you first had spread bets and cfds on shares was because of this and then obviously that got filled that kind of crash that came to an end and then all of the people who get who kind of joined just kind of got flushed out and then you had a period of probably about 10 years where you had to really go for like high-end clients or, or people that kind of knew what they were doing because those were the only people who were not the only but like so for the most part those were the people who were in the market at that point um, and you can even look further back to like 87 when the industry was quite young in, in some ways exactly the same thing happened you had loads of people um, I remember reading something by, by this guy who's at City Index at that time basically saying like yeah we've got loads of clients now they've all been flushed out and it just seems to happen in cycles so I think what what it's like it's literally it's like the cycle itself right you have a kind of unbridled unbridled optimism how it's going to keep going forever there's a fucking crash and then the uh, number of client, the kind of client base you're left with are people that actually know what they're doing 
and then you have to sort of prepare for the next cycle. So at the moment, I would imagine that's what it looks like. You have probably some kind of newbies or people that just get picked up through advertising, but probably there's a lot more people who actually know what they're doing. No, I agree. In the today. Do you know one thing that I think um, is maybe a big blind spot, and it goes towards sort of what I'm talking about, about understanding your client, understanding product, how things just relate. So obviously over the last couple of years as well, crypto had a massive boom, you know, anything that was high beta was getting bid up. Everyone was just going mental as we, we, we already stated. Um, but then you've got European brokerages, you know, SISEC firms that were introducing crypto CFDs. Now with regards to what you're talking about, about clients that know what they're doing, if you're a crypto uh, derivatives trader, you're not going to trade a crypto CFD if you've got fair fair amount of cash. You're going to go to Binance or you're going to go to you know Coinbase Pro or whatever, and you're going to trade it there because the cost is so much less. You can see the order book and all of this stuff. So even product selection shows that, or introduction of the product shows that. Okay, I'm going to hazard a guess that these brokers have. 80 plus percent of clients losing money and that churn rate is just going to eat into their revenues their cost per acquisition is going to be way 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 higher again these are just assumptions but i guess you know if these brokers are listening and they can go through their numbers they might see this after they've introduced crypto cfds um, and you know it's it, it it's just something that you can see straight away like you're making decisions based off of sort of I guess exuberance right and thinking about the end client is is paramount it's what I do at um, Macrodesiac as well like we've got um maybe 800 paying clients now and then we've got you know a couple of maybe like 15,000 people on our free email list we haven't spent a penny on marketing um and if someone comes on board that I don't really think is of value to the rest of the community I'll say look um, I think maybe in a couple of years time, you should come back once you've, you know, been able to, to progress a little bit more. Maybe I might have to be, if they've been immature, they've started, you know, posting rockets or something in the chat saying, oh yeah, this stock's going to fly. Then I'll say to them, look, you need to grow up. You're a really experienced you, trader. You know exactly, exactly what you're talking about. I don't mind banter, <laughs> but you know, again, it comes down to understanding the, the, the client and how it's going to uh, affect, you know, other parts of the, the business, because I don't want some of the other guys uh, in there being put off. Not that it's the same business at all, but it's like, understand the perspective of who your client, who your target client is really, or the most profitable client, because at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones that stay with you, right? I mean, but what, what would, so what would you say to a broker that I think, because I think for like I said, for I think for a lot of companies, this side of the business is kind of an afterthought. Like a lot of it's just sort of IBs and paid marketing. So if you and, and that's true by the way, even to for like some bigger firms. So if you look at say uh, like plus five hundred or trading two on two, I think probably the best example. So those are those are massive companies that are making shitloads of money. But if you look at the kind of content side of stuff, they do they don't really do very much of it. Like it doesn't seem like a thing that they're really that interested in. And so, and you know, they they seem to be doing fine. So if you then, I think maybe if you're a smaller company and you see that, you might go, well, like, what's the point? But then on the other hand, you can say like CMC, IG, put a huge amount of effort into it, and it seems to work for them. So 
I don't really know what to. I never really know what to make of that, right? Like, I think if 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 I was coming to a broker, and so, you know, and I'm in your role of trying to convince them that this is something worthwhile doing, I think it could be very easy for them to go like, well, look at these big companies who are doing it and they're doing fine. Why should we bother putting any effort in? Well, I think it comes down to business model, right? So, um, the likes of your your IGs and CMCs. Um, although they 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 obviously market make, they're not taking and internalizing everything, unlike some of the other firms that you might have mentioned. I don't want to get too you know into the weeds about it, and, and because I don't want to say anything wrong. Firstly, but again, outside perceptions. So a lot of these other firms might uh, rely on you know their their clients losing, um, whereas some of the others might rely on retaining the clients as best possible and this is why some firms have massive you know premium client manager desks um to actually keep those big clients and retain that i guess that share of voice you know they want these big clients to stay with them so that maybe you know if they're wealthy as well they're going to introduce their friends to the firm and uh they're going to stay with them a long time basically but yeah i think um when it when when we're talking about content i think we're really aiming Aiming the high quality content towards uh, the the clients that are going to do more volume. You know, you're always going to get those lower end clients, and their flow is going to be internalized. They're going to lose. You, you can tell it a mile off. You know, thousand pound deposit. You're obviously going to take the other side of that all day. Um, when you've got larger clients that want to do obviously more flow, it's probably better just to build that relationship nicely, provide them with the higher quality stuff. Um, and keep them interested, you know, at the end of the day, and make it complimentary for sales. I think all marketing content should be complimentary for sales, and they need to talk to each other. Um, but if, as just as an example of that, let's say, okay, so let's say you go into a broker and you say you see this disconnect between marketing and sales. Um, what should they, because it's easy to say, oh, they should just be talking to each other. But let's say I'm a marketing person, I've done some kind of campaign and as a result of that campaign, X happens. I don't know what it would be, but something happens, you know, something positive happens. And then what does that, how, how does that then tie into the sales people, right? So does that mean I just then go, I'm the marketing person, I just go to the sales people and go, hey, salesperson, this thing happens. You should probably know about that. <laughs> I don't know if that's how they well, speak to each other. But. <laughs> it's maybe not necessarily on um, on marketing to to do that but let's say for example sales or a premium client manager if we want to be more specific here is saying oh yeah i've got quite a few clients talking about what the bank of japan is going to do um because it seems like they're going to raise their their yield cap um do we have anything that we can provide them as some some talking points going forward and how can we preempt you know uh potentially which asset prices for example might be affected by this will it be dollar yen Will it be, you know, the Nikkei? Will it be even U.S. Treasuries? Because Japan holds a hell of a lot of U.S. Treasuries. You know, things like this to really show that you're going above and beyond for these guys that are going to make most revenue. And it's difficult for marketers to do this, as I said, because, you know, a lot of them haven't been, uh, I, I guess, um, involved in actually trading or broking or anything like that sales probably don't have the time to create their own content so it comes down to your market analysts um and uh who, who actually are part of marketing at the end of the day let's face it 
marketing and sales they could be the bridge they but a lot of them tend not to be a better bridge they kind of sit outside of everything i think probably one of the best ones actually is uh is good old chris weston over at pepperstone um he's he's very good at uh, bridging that gap to be fair um and there's probably others as well that i've forgotten but neil Wilson, at the end of the day, i always not... think is very good his notes what's that do neil from uh, market.com I always think his notes are pretty good. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, Neil, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there needs to be more of that. But it needs to, again, that needs to have intent. I think a lot of the time some of these things are done quite uh, passively and without actually being told this is what you, you're you doing and this is what you need to focus on, you know. Um, but again, I could just be being naive here. But from an outsider's perspective, and at the end of the day, I am a client, um that that is sort of what what i i tend to see no i think i think that definitely makes sense if i think about it from from my own experience i can definitely see how that happens but i i just think that it's it is a it is a really tricky one because because of what you said right which is a lot of the time and marketing people do not have um and i'm not i'm not kind of bigging myself up here but genuinely they can have like very minimal knowledge about financial markets and, and that can and this is yeah this is exactly the problem so let's face it at the end of the day you're in financial markets as a trader and you don't know what is going to happen next you're making decisions based on your best guess however marketing is looking at things from a backwards perspective where they're saying okay um this data has worked previously and this content has worked previously when markets don't actually work like that so it's, it's, it is a genuinely such a different industry to other uh, other industries, I guess, in that the content that you put out almost has to be like a best guess as well. You have to be very much scenario driven. And again, it's difficult for marketing to do that. It's difficult for content writers to do that because they don't think like traders. And this is where the the kind of the content side of things get gets lost because it tends to be very reportive. It tends to be providing too many different scenarios. It tends not to be as opinionated as it could be, obviously within the, the constraints of compliance. Um, but really, when you're talking to traders, that's that's what you need to be able to do. You have to be able to balance that opinion with the strength of opinion and also the compliance side. Um, it's a very, very tricky balance at the end of the day. Um, but again, it can be done. It definitely can be done, and it should be done, especially with, as I said, the the FCA's consumer duty. Um, and I think the FCA do provide a nice grey area if they if they can see that you're you're proactively trying to help the clients um, without providing advice. Obviously, then they're they're happy. They're happy with that. Yeah, I mean, I would say anyone who is listening who is skeptical about this stuff, I've now worked. In, in the kind of mar- whatever you would call it, like market analyst, marketer boundary for, I don't know, like almost about five years now. So not you know, not a crazy amount of time, but it genuinely does work. I, I've been surprised. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that given that I'm the one who's actually doing work, but like how often um, you hear that people have basically made investment decisions on the back of stuff you've written. And I'm not saying that's putting out like a buy or sell note or something like that but genuinely just well-balanced stuff where you're talking like pros and cons of something and people do um yeah they do genuinely make decisions on the back of it so it's not just 
Yeah, I think I think basically because a lot because because so many brokers do exactly the same shit. Like it's just it's just random stuff. You look at it, it's like okay, there's non-farm payrolls from Uganda this morning at 10 a.m. What does that mean <laughs> for? What does that mean for the uh, Kazakhstan stock? It's like I don't know. It's just random stuff that doesn't really, like you said doesn't really have much meaning. But I think if you are a bit more targeted, then it genuinely does have an impact. And it's just I suppose my point is that because there's so much generic stuff, then it can be easy to forget that. Um, but yeah, anyway, on the on the point of consumer duty, I think that was something else we were going to talk about, which is, um, yeah, I, this is something I think that's been cropping up a lot. Um, and it's definitely something brokers probably already are, but do need to be aware of. So can you talk through what's what's your sort of take on it? What does it what's the impact going to be on companies? Well, firstly, I, they use really annoying language in there because they, they talk about like brokers being manufacturers or something like this. I just think it's so dumb. Like, Just use normal language. It's just so ridiculous. Um, but at the end of the day, I guess it's down to the same old stuff, but more specific in that client communications need to be better, I guess. They just need to um, try and provide better stuff to clients education that kind of thing which is fantastic the i guess you know the the difficulty is again how do brokers interpret that and actually produce the right stuff um and as well use it as a way to make money themselves you know you can't just make you can't just abide by something and then it not be of benefit to you it has to be of benefit so um I think uh, there's there's a couple of, of firms that have already got existing sort of structures there um, and they should be expanded upon um, in terms of the education stuff. Um, but I think that's just my, my sort of overall take. I need to look into it much, much more. But obviously the deadline's looming to, to get it started. It's in 10 days, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's a good addition from the FCA. Um and we'll, we'll see how firms seem to work it. But I think that's basically what it comes down to. You know, how does the firm appear to the consumer? How does communications appear to the consumer? Are they, you know, putting stuff out at the at the benefit of the consumer at the end of the day? But yeah, I hate the terminology manufacturers and producers or something like this. They're using it's just ridiculous. Yeah, and it's always fun reading through uh, through stuff the FCA puts out. But yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay, another so another point that's perhaps related to that, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, right? Is um, so what, one of the trends I see in the industry, and I don't know if you can kind of comment on this based on on trading view, your time at trading view, whether there's, there's some uh, connection there, or just in general as someone that trades or works with brokers, is like I th- I really see exchange traded derivatives, so options, futures, as being a big thing that is kind of coming to the market. I don't think it's it's, it's sort of very early days. Um, but if you look at, so eToro's bought an options broker in the US, IG's done the same, plus 500 done something pretty similar. CMC said they're launching options. If you look at Webull, which is a US company, but they're kind of going around the world. You look at their website for, they've, they've launched in South Africa, Australia, it looks exact to me anyway. It looks exactly like CFD provider, but just instead of CFDs, it's options. Um, so, what, one of the things that when I speak with brokers or people at brokers, they will say, like, "Yeah, it's, it's it's possible," but we think the only reason this has become a thing 
is because um, like sorry, I don't. They don't think they will necessarily become a particularly big thing in the UK or Europe because they go well. The only reason options is big in the US because you don't have you're not allowed to have CFDs, right? Mm. Um, from my point of view, I've just seen there's some signs of stuff that I saw over the past, let's say two two three years, where I thought there was a genuine appetite for it. But I think there's a certain there's and I have no idea if this case is purely just from like anecdotal stuff I've seen. Where there's, I think there's people that want to trade leverage stuff, and they don't trust CFDs, or they don't trust CFD providers, maybe, um, and so instead they're more interested in trading options, and it's almost like an untapped market. But I do. Yeah. Do you see, so? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that's still bullshit? Do you think that's possible? Or? Well, I guess you can clearly see the appetite from the exchanges to go for uh, the more traditional CFD crowds globally. You know, the retail crowds. I mean, the CME. Um, they've gone from the ES contract now to uh, to, to MES micro ES. So they've got, you know, they've gotten rid of the larger S and P contract as well. So now it's what twenty five bucks a tick, and is it five bucks a tick? I think um, on the MES. Um, you know, DAX has Eurex introduced DAX micros, for example. Um, but do you know what's do you know what's quite funny is that sometimes you can with spread betting firms, you can get better costs by trading. The spread bet versus the futures contract. Um, I've noticed that quite a lot. Um, but, well, obviously, you know, if they're just marking around a different price, then, you know, it, it can, because they're making their own prices effectively on the spread bet, aren't they, or the CFD? So, not always, but you can get it. Um, I'd still prefer to look at the order book, quite frankly. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, okay, futures and options are deemed more complex. And, at the end of the day, I guess they are. You know, if you're looking at the futures contract, although you probably have better conditions, if you start looking at the order book, things like that, it can become overwhelming. If obviously you have the capability to look uh, at the ladder and things like that, you're not going to get it off of MT4, are you? But um, I think options are a bit of a different beast. I think with options, um, imagine if you're given the ability to to write a call or write a put to your average retail punter. They have they have no idea about Vega. They have no idea about uh, Gamma. They have no idea about any of the Greeks, you know. And I think that is genuinely a little bit dangerous because it's not a directional bet, you know, at the end of the day. Things change from just being purely directional bet, which can, you know, limit your risk with a stop loss to, oh, shit. Uh, I'm going to get taken out because of some vulgar crush or something ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? So I think um, that is probably, uh, you know, I don't even trade options because I don't understand them enough. I don't understand the structures enough and I hate maths. So I can't be bothered to understand (laughs) the structures enough. Um, uh, Obviously there's great tools out there like quick strike, for example, to be able to look at the structures and calculate it all for you. But um, at the end of the day, I tend to think of options more as a risk management tool um, and, a, and a hedging tool more than something to make money from, which at the end of the day, retail traders don't really care about hedging. Um, they don't even have enough margin well, to hedge. That's what most people are using CFDs for, isn't it? They're carefully, what? they're negotiating volatility in falling markets. <laughs> that's what they're using. Oh, exactly, yeah. They're looking at arbitrage opportunities, aren't they, yeah. between the futures and the CFDs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, there, basically there is a big push from the exchanges now. 
too. And I know for 100% that one of the exchanges is speaking with a lot of retail brokers because they recognize that um, they're already getting the futures feed and just making a CFD, CFD on it, right? Um, and really, it's just about the education provision to uh, the, the clients surrounding futures. Um, and I think that the problem there is that uh, retail traders are dumb. Like, they're dumb. Like, they don't care about the costs. They, they just see, like, all right, yeah, I want this market to go up and and they'll just buy it they don't necessarily think that over the course of a year most will lose or break even because of the costs of the market and this is what obviously brokers love um uninformed flow is exactly what brokers want yeah. absolutely you know but, why not it's, it's the business yeah but that that's why i say i think that so i what you said about options i agree i mean i i think they're kind of like a rabbit hole you end up looking at them and I, I haven't looked a huge amount of uh, options trading but just from the from the kind of tentative stuff we've done it, it definitely is it's, it's, i'd put it this way it's much less intuitive than like a spread bet or a cfd because you just oh exactly so could you could you imagine though could you imagine giving retail punters the ability to trade like i don't know software futures or something or software options or something like this or like you know, any kind of short-term interest rate. They're going to be so confused. They're going to look, they're going to look at it like, okay, why is this moving like four ticks a day? Like they're not going to realize that, okay, you trade it in, you know, different strips, you trade it, uh, you know, you, you spread trade, you do all of this different stuff. It's, it's like, this is, this is probably the biggest part that, uh, that comes into options and things like that is that it's not just really buying and selling calls or puts most people use options to trade structures with yeah but i think that is probably the goal right i think that that is better that if what what most of them probably want is by basically buying call options like that that is my that's my perception of that exactly but but then the brokers are ideally going to want people just to trade box spreads on 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 the s p because it's you know it's basically four legs aside so you're getting you're getting what eight eight legs on it entry and exit for commissions. It's brilliant, but people aren't going to want to do that. And I don't think there's sufficient flow or desire at the moment for people to trade options like they do in the US. Um, and it's kind of a good thing as well that the FCA probably wouldn't permit as much gamification um, of of the likes of options and futures um, as well. Maybe not futures, but options as they they have done in the u.s with like robin hood and stuff like that i don't know if you can sell uh i, I don't you know can. if you can sell op- you can sell options with robin hood pretty sure you can i i, I don't i would not be uh like quotes on that but i'm, I'm pretty sure you can yeah pretty sure you can that yeah. that that is insane <laughs> yeah well uh no, no comment <laughs> and, uh... well, yeah, i say sell i, I mean i mean you know, write them obviously. Yeah. Um, but that that for me that is that is pretty crazy. Let's see. I want to actually. I'm pretty sure you can. Uh, maybe you can't actually. You not just long uh... and short. Uh, just. Uh, oh wait, long. actually, I think you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can, right? Yeah, you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So I think we'll see more of that, and um, you, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic about the future. <laughs> <laughs> i love your sarcasm though. yeah no i think no but i think it will i think it will become a thing I, look, to be fair i 
most um just in my personal life i there's a there's sort of people i know who are more let's say sophisticated investors but who are not like professionals or anything like that um prefer futures options so there's, i think there's definitely an audience for it the thing i noticed was was actually really with is with two things so it was with crypto where i think that if you look so if you look at the derivatives that crypto exchanges have brought in which is usually um what do you call that like perpetual futures or something like i think that's what's called right um is i think that part of the reason they did that was because there was like this kind of negative uh, perception of cfds and so they wanted a product that was a bit similar but not cfd right so there, there was to me that suggests there's some audience for leverage that is not that is not cfd and the other thing was i would say meme stocks but just stocks trading in general in like 2020 2021 if you went on a lot of forums or chat whatever kind of discussions um you would see people who it was pre- predominantly people based in europe and they would be to say talking about taking a position on the stock could be with us people or something like that and they would be bitching about the fact that they didn't have access or easy access uh to options and their only you know their only option to trade a derivative on a on an equity was was with um was really with cfds or spread bets and they're like we don't want to do that so i don't know i that could that's as i said it's kind of anecdotal but i think there may be some appetite for it right i think any kind of i suppose any new product you bring in is gonna is like another small set segment of people who are going to be a potential customer yeah i guess you know there's there's people that i know that trade like footsie options and stuff like that but they're boomers warrants um i think it's mainly warrants yeah warrants the last time i heard that word was definitely by someone who was about 68 um they're very, they're very big in. To be fair, warrants are massive in Germany. Like, I think warrants warrants are kind of like, uh, def, as like you say, you uh, LSA listed warrants are like boomer CFDs or something like they they really what trade. Them. Um, cool. Anyway, I think we're kind of rambling now. Is there are there any other things that you know? As someone that's done a bit of consulting work for actually for actually pretty big brokers as well, we're not we're not going to name names, but like off off uh, off offline, you've told you told me uh, who they are. So there's pretty big names. Um, are there any other kind of like final points or things that you saw when you were working with them where you're like, actually maybe maybe could you talk about what things you think they're doing well as well, and then maybe other things that you think uh, they really sucked at doing this. I think um, the, the the sales guys um really the ones that i know anyway they really do uh have very very strong relationships with their clients um and they're they're unlikely um to ever lose that personal touch and that skill that they have i think it's more you know being able to develop the the sort of next generation of really really strong client who might already be like 26 27 high paying job, probably, you know, uh, has worked in, in finance or, you know, is, uh, in some sort of profession that, you know, is, is a professional job, pays them a lot of money and they want to dabble. Um, I think it's nurturing that kind of client into, uh, sticking with you over the next 10, 20 years. And that kind of client these days is much more used to being contacted over digital means. 
And so this is more where I'm, you know, getting at is you want to try and nurture that next client base into being that client that these sales guys or these premium client managers um, have had for the last 10 years. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, people are getting older. They might not want to be trading forever. And so you've really got to obtain that next client base that is relatively wealthy. Um, and so that's just one means of, of focusing on it um, and recognizing that maybe those kind of sit down lunches, going for pints and stuff like that, isn't really the way to build those relationships as much anymore. It is more digital. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, uh, but obviously, obviously, hang on, but let me let me preface that with, yes, young people still like going for pints and uh, and going for lunches, just maybe not as much, right? Yeah. They're, uh, they're, well, I like going for pints and lunches, so I don't know. If any premium client manager is listening and wants to uh, buy me lunch, then, uh, then they can. Um, all right. Well, David, cheers. Thanks very much for doing this. This was uh, very good, and hopefully we can you know, do something similar again at some point in the future. Absolutely, mate. Thanks so much for having me on.